Hey, if you have been at Storyline, you probably heard Galatians and you're like, whoa, this is kind of a pivot, right? Like we've been working through the book of Genesis here for almost a year, all right? And so here's what we've seen throughout the book of Genesis. I'm going to make some connections for us, all right? What we've seen throughout the book of Genesis is that the whole entire Bible starts with a vision, all right? The Bible starts with a vision about life with God under the rule of God. What happens in Genesis chapter 1 is God speaks creation into existence. And as he's working through the days of creation, he creates man and he declares that they're very good. And what you see is that Adam and Eve in the garden, they walk in the garden, they relate with Jesus, they relate with God in the garden, they live with God in his physical presence. But then this vision is interrupted by a fall that happens. Adam and Eve, they experience the serpent, they experience Satan who comes into the garden and they reject God by disobeying his one rule that they not eat of the tree. And so as they fall into sin, what you see is that sin just wrecks havoc everywhere. You see it wrecks havoc on their lives their lives begin, their physical bodies begin to deteriorate. You see it mess up relationships. The two first kids that are born, the oldest kills the youngest. Like you see just madness that's happening in Genesis. And then as all this is happening, there's still like at the very fall, God meets Adam and Eve and he gives them this promise. And it's this beautiful promise. And it's this promise that over and over as you're watching the characters unfold the story throughout the book of Genesis, you're just waiting to see if God fulfills this promise in each of these characters. And the promise is that he's going to redeem us, that he's going to deal with our sin problem, that he's going to send somebody into the world that's going to redeem us, that he's going to crush our greatest enemy, that is Satan, and then he's going to bring us back into relationship with himself and we get to live in his presence. So as you're watching through all of the book of Genesis, you're just waiting. Is this the character? Is this the character? Now, here's how God ultimately, as we are here today, here's how we know that God fulfills his promise. It's the gospel. The gospel is God's fulfillment of the promise that he would send someone into the world to deal with our greatest need, which is our sin problem. And then he would also fulfill his vision by which we get to live in the presence of of God. This is what the gospel is, all right? It's the most beautiful message that anyone in the entire world could ever hear that you can have a relationship with the living God. That's what the Bible tells us, all right? And that's what the gospel is all about. And we're looking at the book of Galatians because that's all what the book of Galatians is about, all right? So in the next 13 weeks, we're gonna just going to do a deep dive into the book of Galatians where we look at this gospel and unpack it for our, our very own life. And here's why it's the perfect time for us to do this, all right? We've been working through the book of Genesis, and we have just finished the story of Abraham, all right? So as we've worked through the story of Abraham, we have fresh in our minds characters like Sarah, which is Abraham's wife right? And then you have Hagar, which is Sarah's servant. Then you have Isaac, the story that we're going to enter into when we dive back into Genesis. Look, all of these characters you find in the book of Galatians. And what Paul does is he uses these characters to help unpack and for us to understand deeper the truths of the gospel. And so 
What we wanted to do is we want to do two things, all right? One, we want to dive deep into the gospel. This is what has transformed our life. And so we want to be like these gospel ninjas, right? Like we want to be able to know the gospel in and out. But look, we also want to make connections in the Bible, all right? We want to help you see how the Old Testament and the New Testament are not just these separate books, but how God has been working throughout the midst of all of it for us to have a right relationship with him. All right, and so as we do this, we're gonna begin by looking at the very first nine verses of the book of Galatians. That's what we're gonna unpack tonight. And as we do it, we're gonna see two things, all right? Paul's gonna tell us, the apostle Paul's the writer of this. He's the one that planted this church in Galatia. And he does two things. First, he explains the importance of the gospel. So we're just gonna wrestle with that for a little while, all right? The very first five verses of this text, we're gonna wrestle with the importance of the gospel. And then he moves to a distortion of the gospel that's happened in the church of Galatia. And this is a warning to that very church, but it's also a warning to us. So we need to unpack it. We need to wrestle what this distortion really is. And so as we're considering all this, here's what I have been praying this past week and what I believe God's going to do. All right. I believe first he's going to bring a renewed love for the gospel in our life. All right. I believe that the gospel is so beautiful that whenever you gaze at it and you stare into it, that it sparks this new infatuation, this love for Jesus. And I believe that's going to happen tonight. Secondly, I believe it's also going to bring a renewed commitment to the gospel, right? This deep, never turning away gospel that we want in our church, all right? So, We find the importance of the gospel in verses one through five. We see that it's so important because Paul begins the gospel with it. So let me kind of read through the text for us real quick. And I'm gonna highlight some things and pull stuff out to help us understand what the gospel is and why it's important, all right? So Paul begins in this letter like he does in many of his other letters. He introduces himself. So that's what we find in verses one and two. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul's saying, look, I'm just this, it's not because of who I am, but because of the kindness of God in my life that I'm a uniquely appointed herald of the gospel, this person that proclaims the good news of Jesus to a lost and dying world. I am a uniquely appointed apostle. And he says this, there's people that are accompanying him, all the brothers who are with me. Paul regularly has people that he takes on missionary journeys with him. He's identifying some of those people right here. Then he moves to greet his audience, the people that he's writing to, all right? So he tackles a bit more here, which is where we see him unpack the gospel. So he says, to the churches of Galatia, this letter is a circular letter. So what happens is it's not just to one particular church, but Paul has seen people that have come to faith in various places throughout Asia Minor. And so he writes this letter to the church of Galatia, but it's going to be passed around to a number of different churches, all right? And so here's what he says. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, usually that's where Paul stops and he moves into like this thanksgiving for the people that he's writing to, but that's not what he does. He gives us the gospel. In the next verses four through five, we see 
Paul articulate the gospel for us and it highlights its importance. He says, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so rather than stopping with the simple grace and peace to you, Paul gives us this gospel of Jesus. It's important for the initial topic that he's going to hit in verses 6 through 9 that we're going to look, look at here shortly, but as well as the rest of the letter. So it makes sense why Paul highlights the gospel here for us. And so just as Paul wants his audience, the Galatian churches, to be a gospel-centric people, we want in present day to be a gospel-centric church. Just as Paul highlights the gospel at the beginning of this, we want the gospel to permeate everything about the life of our church. And I love the way that Paul articulates the gospel here because it's so memorable, all right? Let me help you understand this, all right? So Paul makes the gospel like Velcro. It sticks with you after this, all right? There's three words that kind of stick out here within this articulation of the gospel. There's one gospel with three aspects, all right? You get grace, you get the cross, and you get the kingdom. You get grace, and you get the cross, and you get the kingdom. Let me show this to you in these three verses, all right? So Paul begins with grace. Verse 3 says this, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul is announcing, all right? As he's writing to this church in Galatia, he is announcing acceptance and fellowship with God. That's what he means by grace and peace, all right? Grace to you means I accept you. Not because of who you are or anything that you've done in your life. I accept you, though. That's what grace means for us. It's like this combination of these Old Testament words of grace and this long-standing love. That there's this steadfast love that continues to pursue after you despite of things that you've done, not because of things that you've done. I accept you. And then you see peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul saying, look, God's befriended you. God has brought you into fellowship with himself. Now, here's why this is astonishing, all right? This is astonishing, not because of God's character, but because of ours. If you look at the truth of the gospel and you see what has unpacked in the book of Genesis, we know that there's broken fellowship with God. Our sin has caused broken fellowship with God. And each one of us in this room still have this sin problem, all right? So sin is not just that you've done bad things, but it's taking good things and making them ultimate things. We, every single one of us has done this. You may look at your life and be like, well, I haven't done anything that just feels like it's over the top bad. I look at my life, it's fairly clean. But look, every single one of us have placed something higher in importance than our relationship with God. Every single one of us were born and created to be in fellowship with God. And every single one of us has said, God, I want your stuff more than I want you. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. He says this, sin is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, your purpose, and happiness than your relationship with God. And look, the result of this is broken fellowship. So it's astonishing that Paul would write to this church in Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He's declaring he accepts you, you have fellowship with him. 
Now, the question that you have to ask here is how? How in the world, if we have broken fellowship because of our sin, do we have this grace and peace that's extended to us from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is the cross. So you get grace, but you also have the cross. We get this in the uh, verse 4, very beginning of verse 4. It says, uh, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, who gave himself for our sins. So look, grace and peace stem from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right? So three things about the cross of Christ make it absolutely stunning. All right? Here's the three things. First, it's voluntary. Second, it's necessary. And then third, it's substitutionary. I'll unpack those for us, all right? Because those are a lot of Aries, right? So the first one is this. It's voluntary, all right? So I think oftentimes I fall into the trap, maybe you do too, that you look at the cross of Jesus as if it's just his job, something that Jesus was obligated to, right? Well, of course Jesus would die for me. That's what he was supposed to do. But if you look at what Jesus says throughout his ministry, he actually tells us, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. In John chapter 10, as he's talking about, he's giving this I am statement, declaring that he is God in the flesh. As he's stating this, he's forecasting that he's going to the cross. And as he's doing it, he's saying, you don't take my life from me. No one takes my life from me. I know exactly what's about to happen. I know what is my, I know my future. I know the road that I'm walking on. I know exactly what I'm walking into. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Look, here's what Jesus is doing, all right? The only one that ever deserved fellowship with God voluntarily lays his life down so that you get his fellowship with God. That's what Jesus does through the cross. He voluntarily lays down his life. Second thing that we see is that this is necessary. Because look, only a perfect, unblemished sacrifice can actually wipe away the debt for your sin. The wages of sin is death, and it had to be a perfect sacrifice. That's exactly what you get in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every single way that you and I were tempted, yet he never gave in once. Not even once. And so Jesus, his sacrifice wasn't just voluntary, it was necessary. There's no one else that we could turn to. There's nothing in your life that you could offer God that would wipe away your payment for your sin. It had to be Jesus. There's nobody else that could lay down his life and accomplish what Jesus did. But Jesus laid down his life voluntarily, but it was also necessary. And then lastly, lastly, we see that his death was also substitutionary, which means he died in your place. All right. Here's what Romans 5, 8 says. God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, listen to this, Christ died for us. Jesus in your place. So look, I had a friend. It's actually a friend of a friend, right? <laughs> One of those stories. So this friend of a friend knew somebody really high up in the military, all right? And so that means he had just insane connections, right? This guy had insane connections. And so one night he's asleep and he gets this random phone call at three o'clock in the morning, 
And so he picks it up just normal, like his voice is all scratchy like yours is whenever you wake up in the middle of the night. Like you need the drink of water just to clear out your throat. That's where he's at, right? So he answers this. He's in his PJs and he answers the phone. And as he does it, he hears the voice, he hears the name, but he can't quite believe who it is. And so he's like, come again, like who? Who did you say you are? He was like, this is the president of the United States of America. And you know what he did? He was like, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. You're like this man of valor. He's like, I, I don't know what to do with myself. And so he's like, all I could think to do is I, stood, I got out of bed and I stood at attention. And he has like the president of the United States is just on the other phone. He's not in the room, but this guy gets out like just in his trousers and he's like standing at attention, right? It's because of who the person was on the other end of the line. Look, our response would probably be something similar. It's like, I don't, I don't know what to do, like I, but this person's important. Now, here's what I want you to understand, all right? The God of the universe that spoke men like the president of the United States into existence, the one that Colossians chapter one says places those authorities as a footstool under Jesus is the one that died on your, in your place, paid your debt. Look, the cross is astonishing. You look at it and you gaze at it and it's like, how could a God love me like this? That he would lay down his life for me. Now look, this isn't, the result isn't just like this clean slate in your life. It gets even better. Because what you get is a full life. You get the kingdom. You get life with God under the rule of God, which is what we see at the end of verse four. It says this, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. Look, this is kingdom language. This is kingdom language. Paul puts it like this in Colossians 1.13. He says, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and listen, transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Simple terms, God has shared his life with you. God has made it possible to live with him. This is not just something for the future, but it's also for the present. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of you everywhere that you go. If you've called on the name of Jesus, God lives with you. <sighs> not just a clean slate, not that God has just dealt with my sin problem. I get God. I get life with him. He makes his home inside of me. One day, the, the idea that I get to experience just in part what I get now, I get to live with him in full. I get to live with God present physically. That's what your future is. That's the kingdom. And God gives it to you in Christ Jesus. And look, here's how Paul ends this. All right, he says, according to the will of our God and Father. Look, he says this. This has God, been God's plan. God is the one that devised and he brought all this up. He's the one that's been moving all the puzzle pieces to make all this happen. Look, 
This is what didn't happen. It wasn't that humanity woke up to their sin problem and then came to God and pleaded for his mercy. That's not what happened at all. What God did is out of his outrageous love for sinners said, I'm going to come and I'm going to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And I give it all to you because I'm the one that's accomplished it and you don't have to do anything. That's the good news of the gospel. Look, now, Paul is about to confront the Galatians about how they've turned away from this gospel, kingdom, cross, and grace in verses six through nine. So Paul, what he's done here, he's been like a skilled lawyer, right? A skilled lawyer, if he's gonna come into a case, he's gonna lay out all the facts for the case, right? But it gets even more in depth than that because Paul's not just this, this skilled lawyer, he's also this gifted artist, all right? Who's opened up our eyes to the beauty of the gospel. And I get this because of the way that he ends, at the very end, he ends with worship. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. It's like Paul's moved by his own words. <laughs> He's like, wow, that is so, like I gotta just stop this letter and I just gotta like praise Jesus. Like that's what happens in the middle of this like message. Look, if he's just a skilled lawyer that's laying down the facts of a case, you don't stop for worship like that, right? No, he's a gifted artist and he's looked at this, he's laid down the gospel, he's like, oh my gosh, this is too good. Like we have to stop before we go any further. We just gotta like praise God for what he's done. And so look, before Paul addresses the matters of the head in verses six and nine through nine, he knows he must capture the hearts of his audience. Wait, here's what Paul is doing. He's fighting for the renewal of, of a love for the gospel in this church of Galatia. That's what Paul's doing here as he unpacks the truths of the gospel here. He knows before I can even get to the matters of the head, the distortions of the gospel, I must capture their hearts. And look, we must fight for the same. We must fight for the same. And here's how we do this, all right? Look, you go to the Bible and it helps you gaze at the beauty of the gospel. That's what the Bible does. If you go to the Bible and you read through the Bible, you get gospel nuggets, these small, compacted passages where the gospel's just laid out before you. Here's what the gospel's like. The gospel's like a diamond, all right? Diamond, beautiful, right? Love, love diamonds. I'm not a girl, but I love diamonds, right? Like as I shopped for diamonds for my wife whenever we were about to get married 16 years ago, I looked at diamonds like, man, these things are amazing, right? No wonder there were so much. Here's how you know how beautiful a diamond is. You look at it in three aspects, right? You look for clarity, you look for cut, and then you look for color, right? And as you look for these different aspects in a diamond, it makes the diamond shout at you, doesn't it? Like, it's like, oh my gosh, this thing's so beautiful. Look, it's the same way with the gospel. There's one gospel with three aspects, kingdom, cross and grace. And so what you do is you go to the Bible and you stare at the beauty of the gospel through these three different aspects. There's different passages all throughout the Bible that bring forth these different aspects of the gospel that you just go sit with and you gaze at it and you stare at it and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that God did this for me. All right. So look, you go to the Bible and you look for the kingdom. And so you go and you look for stories like John the Baptist as he's about to be 
killed. He sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, are you the one or should we keep searching? You know how Jesus responds to him? Look around you. The sick are healed. The poor are cared for. The dead are raised. The possessed are freed. Like he, this is kingdom, right? Like Jesus is reversing the curse. Like at the voice of Jesus, things happen. And the things of this world, the, the, the things that sin has inflicted its curse on, Jesus reverses just with the power of his voice. That's kingdom, right? Or you go to Revelation chapter 21, where you see like the vision of the kingdom. That what happens here is heaven comes to earth. God makes his dwelling with man. And as this happens, there's no sun because his glory shines so bright. What the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 21, there's no more death. There's no more disease. There's no more pain. There's no more tears because God has eradicated all of that out of this world. And we get to live in the presence of the living God. That's kingdom. So you go and you gaze at the gospel by looking at these passages of the kingdom. It's like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. Then you go and you go to the letters that the apostles wrote to the churches, right? And look for the cross. Because as you do it, you see people like the apostle Peter who writes like, look, here's what the cross of Jesus Christ did. You have been, you've been healed by his wounds. That's what he says. He declares that to the church. You, your sin sickness has been dealt with through the wounds of Jesus Christ. You go to Colossians chapter two and you have Paul who says, look, the certificate of the death or of the debt of sin has been paid. How? Because it was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel of the cross. My sin has been dealt with in Jesus Christ. And you're like, this is astonishing. Stunning. Then you go to grace and you look at the stories of people who have received grace. And so, look, we're moved by stories of the woman at the well, right? Jesus gazes in and he knows everything about her life. And he says, I'll give you living water. And she's pierced to the core. What does she do? She runs and responds, This guy's told me everything. And he said that I can have life eternal with God. And she goes and witnesses to all the people that are in the town that know everything about her life, too. Then you look at the woman that was brought to Jesus' feet, the woman that was caught in adultery. What does Jesus look at her and say? He says, Go and sin no more. You are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. It's grace. Oh my gosh, people that are like caught in wicked sin are brought to Jesus and he pronounces over them, I forgive you, your sin is forgiven, go and sin no more. Incredible grace. You have stories like Zacchaeus, one of the worst betrayers of God's people. He's this tiny, wee little man. They don't even, he's so short, he can't see over the crowd as Jesus is walking through. And so what does he have to do? He climbs up a tree and as he does it, Jesus identifies him. What do you say? Zacchaeus, we're going to your house. I'm throwing a big party. And as he does it, like all of his friends, he brings all of his friends, all the tax collectors, all the big sinners, they all come into Zacchaeus' house and there's this massive party. And Zacchaeus understands what Jesus has given him. And he says, you know what, Jesus? What I've taken, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna pay back multiple times what I've taken from other people. You know why he does that? Because he tastes the grace of Jesus. 
And what you do with this is you put yourself in their place because their story is your story. When you call on the name of Jesus, you get the kingdom, you get the cross, and you get grace. What happens? There's renewed love for the gospel. It's important, and that's why Paul starts with it, but he doesn't end there. He then moves to the gospel distortion that has happened in the church of Galatia. And we need to listen up, all right? Because we have the same tendencies that happen in Galatia in our life today. All right, so here's what verses six through nine say. I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. Look, Paul's intense here, right? Like, Paul is going out and he's just laying curses on people, right? It's like, whoa, that's Paul, like, he's not holding back. Like, verse 7, or uh, I don't know what verse this is. I have it written down in here. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. Paul's, like, calling out the big guns, right? Like, even if an angel from heaven comes to preach something different to you. A curse be on him. It's like, whoa, Paul, that's intense. So like, what's going on? Well, we see the answer in verse seven. He says this, there are some who are troubling you and look, want to distort the gospel of Christ. So here's what's happened, all right? Paul's traveled throughout Asia Minor. He's preached the gospel. As he's gone and he's preached the gospel, some people have believed and responded, placed their hope and faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And so there's these new churches that form. And so as Paul moves on, there's a group of other teachers that go to these churches and they teach a distorted gospel. They twist it. They take the gospel that Paul preached and they twist it. And the Galatians have believed this distorted gospel and they followed these false teachers. And so Paul, getting wind of this, writes this letter and he confronts them in their distortion of the gospel. That's what is happening here. It's a betrayal of what Christ has done for them. They've turned away. They've abandoned it. The way that the language there for that turning away or the abandoning is like an army that leaves its commander to go for the enemy. That's what Paul is articulating here that has happened in their distortion of the gospel. So how do the teachers that have followed Paul distort the gospel? Well, they've turned the gospel into what C.S. Lewis, any C.S. Lewis fans in here? Yes? Thank you. I see you in the back. Um, Here's how C.S. Lewis defines it. He says, this is Christianity and. Christianity and. And we get this in the screw tape letters if you've read it. Christianity and says that you need Jesus and, and then fill in the blank. Jesus and fill in the blank. And so the discorded gospel subconsciously, here's what it says. You must finish Christ's unfinished work. That's what a distorted gospel says. You must finish the unfinished work of Jesus Christ. That's Christianity and. 
And so in Galatia, here's what the teachers were saying. To be one of God's people, yes, you need Jesus. But you need Jesus and the practices of his people that you practice circumcision. We won't get into that. You're welcome. You also must submit yourself to the Old Testament law. All six, over 600 different laws. You need Jesus, but then you need Moses and you need the obedience to get you over, over the hump. Here, basically, here's what it's saying. Jesus is the steroid for your sin problem and the way that you get the ultimate healing is that you follow the discharge notes that you got when you leave the hospital. That's what Paul is saying here. And this distorts the gospel because it alters it from a divine gift. That's what grace is. It's a gift that you don't deserve. And it turns it into human achievement. So it takes, it's not Jesus and, but look, it's Jesus period. That's the gospel. It's Jesus full stop. Nothing more. But these people have fallen into the belief that it's Jesus and not, look, we need this warning too, all right? Paul writes and confronts the church of Galatia about how they've distorted the gospel because they've fallen into the belief that it's Jesus and circumcision and following the Old Testament laws. That's what has happened within the life of this church. And look, we fall for the same things. It looks different though, right? Like we fall for, we are a people that are prone to wonder. Like if you look at your own soul, you see how you constantly over and over again through your struggle with sin continue to turn away from Jesus. Even if you've followed Jesus for many years, I followed Jesus for close to 30 years, y'all. I still see this in myself. I see how I'm prone to wonder. I'm prone to take the gospel that God has worked out throughout human history and say it's Jesus and, and then I fill in blanks. And you do this too, all right? Now the list is endless, all right? We can't fulfill, we can't go through every single one of them, but I do want to like touch on a few that I think are just really prominent in our day and age right now, all right? Can we do that for a second? Just a little bit? All right. So here's some prominent ones, all right? So Jesus and is just like whatever you cling to, all right? And so Here's how we do Jesus in when we concentrate on self-improvement, all right? So here's what the voice of this sounds like. It says, when you base your proximity to God on a personality score above the gospel, then that's Jesus and, right? When you, we love personality tests right now, don't we? Like, we love them. Like, Enneagram, yes. Like, love it, right? Some of, like, there's color ones that are out there, like, you have disc with like the lowercase i and like a big case c. You know, like Myers-Briggs. Like you have all these, they're endless. And so many people are just trying to make money off of you, right? And so what, here's like, you take these things and you're like, I want to be a better person. I want to be the better me. And so I'm going to get this personality score. I'm going to memorize everything about it. I'm going to try to change myself. Look, the way that you go from being Jesus period to Jesus and is whenever you take these tools and they supersede the gospel for you. It's like, if I know my personality score better then like, I'm going to be a better me. Well, no, you know how gospel or you know how life change happens in you? You continue to come back to the gospel. 
That's how you change. You never move beyond it. You just keep coming back to it. It's like the thing that changes you. Yeah, we can use tools and they're fine, but the thing that changes you is the gospel. And so whenever we try to replace something and make ourselves better, that's Jesus and, all right? We also do this when we concentrate on like spiritual practices, all right? So look, if you base your depth of your relationship with God on how frequent you read your Bible, you may be falling into Jesus and. Here's the good news of the gospel. It is nothing that you've done. Even your religious practices. There's not one of you, if you haven't read your Bible once this year, but you've declared your name, one, we, we got some issues <laughs> that we do need to work through there. Because if you love God, then you love the scriptures. Like, you got to get into them, right? But look, your basis and your standing and your relationship with God is not founded in how often you've read your Bible. It's what Jesus has done for you. It's not like how frequently I pray. It's what Jesus has done for you. It's his definitive statement on your life that he's trusted in, you have trusted in him. He's placed his spirit inside of you. That's it. It's not your spiritual practices. It's Jesus, period. Another way we do this is we concentrate on like things like social activism, right? And so Here's what that voice sounds like. If your acceptance is determined on the impact you've made in your community, that's how you base, if you are close with God, then you may be doing Jesus and. Look, absolutely, we are created to live and advance the kingdom of God in this world. Like that is part of the call that we get to do. But look, it does not summarize your, your definitive statement, your stance, your position with God. That's what Jesus has done for you. You get to live from it. So you get to, yeah, you get to do kingdom works. You get to do things. You get to live with God and you get to see his kingdom advance here and he's created you for good works. But that's not what saves you. It's the kingdom that you get. It's not what you have done for God. It's what God has done for you. Now, look, you may be thinking like, well, how do I know, right? Like, how do I know if I'm doing this stuff? A common identifier is comparison in your life. Look, the only way we can measure these things in our life is by looking over our shoulder. That's the only way that we can measure these things, right? So look, you know your personality, your personality profile better than um, the gospel or you're looking at your personality profile and you're like comparing yourself in terms of like your advancement and how much better, how much change has happened in your life, you're looking over your shoulder. The way that you're measuring that is by you're looking at other people that are around in your life. It's comparison. Same way with reading your Bible. It's like if you have more checks that are marked off on your reading plan and you're at D group and you're like, oh, I'm beating him, like, that's comparison, right? Or if you look at your schedule and you're like, I've sacrificed more of my days off than anybody else in the life of our church to serve his kingdom, that's comparison. You may be doing Jesus and if you're doing any of these. The common identifier is that you compare yourself. So look, here's why Paul confronts the Galatians in this, and I think it's something that we need to wrestle with as well. He does this because he wants to renew their commitment to the gospel, and that should be our takeaway as well, all right? Here's a practical 
way to ensure that you stay true to the gospel in your life is that you be a part of a church that regularly proclaims it. You'd be a part of church that regularly proclaims it, right? There's an old pastor who once um, was, he, people came to him, they believed that he wasn't teaching against the errors of his day. And he disagreed, and here's how he responded. He said, I do preach against them most effectually, actually. If there's a crooked stick about, and you want to show how many crooks there are in it, you need not do anything except lay a straight one down by the side of it, and the crookedness of the other stick will be detected at once. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, I preach against the errors of our day by preaching the gospel regularly. You want to know how you identify what is the crooked stick? Well, you lay down the straight one and they compare against the others. Look, if you want to identify, you want to root out the error in the life of the church, you continually practice preaching the gospel. That's the only comparison that you should have in your life. How often am I submitting myself to the preaching of the gospel in my life. Now look, this should be true of a pastor or pastors of a church. Yeah, they should guard the truth in the life of the church. But to be a part of a church that regularly proclaims the gospel, it means that the people practice proclaiming the gospel too. It's called the priesthood of believers. And you're regularly proclaiming the gospel to one another. Here's what this looks like, right? Like, so we are a church, we're a family. Like we, we created spots for ministry to happen in the life of our church where we proclaim the gospel. We've created spaces for us where we gather around the Bible in relationship for us to proclaim the truth of the gospel. That's where we should be proclaiming. Like all of us, should be regularly ministering to one another with the good news of Jesus. That's how you root out being a person that distorts the gospel because you're a part of a church that regularly proclaims it. So that means like you're in our storytellers with our kids and you're proclaiming the truth of the gospel to our kids. That means you're a part of our hospitality team. Our hospitality team, like, it's a maze to try to get in here, right? Like, we have to have people stationed throughout this whole place just so you can get in here, right? As you do that, like, that is a visible representation of the acceptance that God has given us. Like, we try to create a moment that matters with you here, trying to help you experience the grace and the acceptance that you have in Jesus Christ. It's hard to leave this place without someone coming and talking to you and making, putting your name and your face together and wanting to hear parts of your story. They're trying to enact part of the gospel that God has taken his step towards you. We have a worship team that does liturgy. We had like music teams. That we're, like, we're putting words on your lips where we sing the truth of the gospel here. Every single time that we gather together, we're rehearsing the good news of the gospel. We have words that are on a screen that you read the underlying portions. What is that? It's the gospel. We're trying to put the gospel on your lips. Discipleship groups. We have a, we have Th uh, groups of three to five men or women that are going there, opening up the Bible. We're trying to learn what we believe. We're working through these call and response, question and answer. We're learning what we believe, but we're regularly opening up the Bible. We're discussing the good news of Jesus in one another's life. Look, you need that. You need someone that's opening up the Bible and helping you identify where the gospel is and then bringing it to you, right? 
Like we need people that look at our life, they know our life, and whatever we do, <coughs> sorry, <laughs> when we do Jesus and, we have people that know our life and like, hey, I need to bring you the good news of Jesus. Look, it's not your parenting. It's not Jesus and good parenting. Like you're feeling really down on yourself because you failed as a parent. Like the good news of the gospel is that your relationship with Jesus doesn't depend on your parenting. It doesn't depend on you being a good friend. Like the good news is that Jesus is your best friend, right? Like he's done everything for you. Like these are the things. We need these things in our life. We need a church, not a person, not a pastor. We need a church that regularly proclaims the gospel to one another. Look, we want to be a church that has a continued commitment to the gospel, a church that preaches the gospel to one another. We want to listen to what Paul has said here in these first nine verses. We should be the first ones to say, Paul's preaching to me. Paul's writing, yeah, this is a letter that was written 2,000 years ago. But Paul's writing to me. I'm a person that wonders. I'm a person that needs the gospel. I'm a person that needs people in my life that are preaching the gospel to me. So look, church, let's listen to Paul's words. Look, let's be a church that is gospel-centric. That we are a people that are infatuated with what God has done in our life. That throughout human history, God has been working from the very beginning, before the beginning of time, to bring about right relationship with him so that we can live with God for all eternity. Like, let's be a church that regularly proclaims that to one another. And then as we proclaim it to one another, we proclaim it to our city. Then we go, look, look how good this God is. Oh my gosh, this God that spoke the world into existence. This God that has so deeply loved us that he didn't just send some random guy into the world to die in my place. He put on human flesh. He walked in my place. He lived perfectly. He died in my place and he rose from the grave. The grave is it's empty. Jesus is alive. You see it at the right hand of God. He's coming back for us. Like this gospel is too good not to believe. We're the witnesses of it. Like we love, love living with God, which means, yes, we do go out and we do do good works, but it's not because we're trying to earn relationship with God. It's because we're living out of that relationship. That's a gospel-centric church. Let's heed the words of Paul and let's be that church. So look, if you came in here tonight and you're like, I needed a renewed love for the gospel. Look, what does it look like for you this week to go find one of those gospel nuggets and to just sit with it? That you just, I need the grace of God in my life. I'm just gonna go sit with the woman at the well. And I'm gonna be the woman that Jesus approached in extended grace. Maybe this past week you did something horrendous, some sin that you never thought you would have ever done in your life. You're like, 
I'm the woman that was caught in adultery. But Jesus, he comes and he approaches me. And because I've called on his name, he's forgiven me. And he's told me to go and sin no more. I'm the person that needed to be reminded that the mountain that seemed like my sin that could never be overtaken was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm the person that needed to hear that Jesus had the power over this broken world and he was reversing its order. He came and he declared, repent and believe because the kingdom of God is here. Believe the good news. What does it look like for you to go sit with one of these and be renewed in your love for the gospel? What does it look like for us to be a church that's renewed in its commitment to proclaim the gospel? Look, if, you, if you're not in a place right now where you are regularly proclaiming the gospel in someone's life, look, you're missing out. You're missing out. This is, a, this is part of the life that God has given you. It's a privilege. How beautiful are the feet of those who go and declare the good news of Jesus to those that don't know God. For those that are in your life, they're doing Jesus and it's a privilege to come and take the good news of the gospel to them. May we be a church that's renewed in our commitment to the gospel. I wanna be a gospel-centric church, don't you? Let's live into it. Let's pray.